0: Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. My name is Mark Cleveland. I'll be taking over for the podcast for a little while so that Justin can have a break. And my guests today are Dustin DePenning and Michael Elliott. who are both working on Syntheside, a previously published game, which is now going to be Forged in the Dark to pick up new fans and followers, I'm
1: assuming. Uh, Welcome.
2: Hey, how's it going? I'm uh, Dustin DePenning and my
1: pronouns are he, him. Hello, I'm Michael. My pronouns are also he, him.
0: Excellent. With that out of the way, let's go ahead and get started with some of your origin story. i am really been anxious to hear about what got you into design.
2: So for me, I come more from the trad side of things. I didn't get into story gaming until I moved to Los Angeles. So most of my high school and college experience was spent with different traditional style games like D20 uh, modern or d d or a uh, little bit of Savage Worlds and to me making my own content was always way more fun than like reading about other people's content or uh, other than for inspiration for new content I didn't want to like run other people's content at the table necessarily and then I also always wanted to make my own mechanics for different situations and then still in college while i was still deep in the trad gaming scene i made a traditional role-playing game called Syntheside, which is what this podcast is about because we're making a new hacked in the dark version that's more narrative focused mm. but Syntheside was my first game i've made i've made some games since then but Syntheside was a really cool setting and it used a streamlined tactical combat system with some narrative hooks to make sure that the mission and the character structure and all that stuff was interesting and made sense. So that way you wouldn't have too much Ludo narrative going on. You know. You can have that in some of the trad games. But uh, it, it, it leaned more narrative than most trad games do, but it was still very trad because it used tactical grid combat and stuff like that. and That was a big part of my gaming experience because I'm also a huge board gamer, so I love those crunchy mechanics and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So that was my first uh, RPG design experience and it went pretty well. It's a Electrum bus bestseller on drive-through RPG, which is pretty cool. I'm proud of that. took took a while to get there.
0: So what what I was particularly interested, it seemed like there's a drive for you to step outside of what you were finding. I think a lot of us can share that uh, that feeling. A lot of our listeners are also going to be fellow Fortune in the Dark designers and game designers of uh, various ilk. Right. What about you, Michael? What's your interest here?
1: Yeah. So. I started playing RPGs with like 4th edition D&D, so I kind of got out like later in my life. I wasn't into like in my 20s really when I started playing. And how I got into Blades of the Dark specifically and like game design was um, I actually started and failed a business. Uh, I wanted to produce, like, a subscription narrative experience where you pay, like, you know, ten fifteen 15 bucks a month and you get, like, a piece of a story in the mail that's all, like, aged, like it's, you know, a, a page from a 17th century occultist's journal or something. You're piecing together this narrative as it goes month to month. And... It was great, but uh, I know how to tell a story, but I don't know how to run a business, turns out, and that's important. <laughs> so that uh, mm-hmm. crashed and died, and I was really burnt out. I think I realized I did the math at some point and realized in order to make it profitable, I had to be working every day for twenty five hours a day. So mm-hmm. obviously, <laughs> I didn't didn't plan it well. the the stuff I was making was too cheap, and it took me too long to make. But I've been a writer like my whole life. I love telling stories. And so even when I was really burnt out on creative writing, I still wanted to, to be making something in my downtime. And it was at that point, about the same point, that I started playing my first plays of the Dark game because I'd heard about it through like, a couple actual plays on YouTube and Twitch streams. I had been listening to Friends at the Table. They played it for a little while. And I thought, this sounds really interesting. I want to check this out and almost immediately after my first campaign i was like i want to do something with this like this is prime for like a cyberpunk setting or something oh yeah and that was like early in like the it was like the last year of google plus existing so i like reached out to the community and started talking with people through there and yeah i've ended up making like a whole bunch of Forge of the dark games i'm working on neon black my cyberpunk game i made nasty brutish and long which is about you know, class War and Revolution, I made a Torch in the Dark, which is like a solo dungeon-crawling game when you're stealing wealth back from undead nobles. Uh, I'm part of the design team for <laughs> External Containment Bureau, which was on uh, Zion Quest this year. So yeah, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm absolutely hooked.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're all in, it sounds like. The Blades in the Dark design space is uh, quite wide, though, too, so you get so much space to move and like explore different genres with it. Um, I'm glad to see you're uh, you're sticking with the uh, cyberpunk. I, I remember your work on Neon Black. I was quite impressed with that, and I've also, you know, shown quite a bit of interest myself in that genre, as you may know. <laughs> in my work on Runners, so you know, it's, it's an attractive thing to to think about criminals in the future. I suppose that's part of the elevator pitch. Maybe you could talk about that. Either one of you have uh, an an idea of what you would what you tell people when they ask you, you know, on the street. They say what do you do for a living and you finally get to talking about it what do you tell them what what, what sets it apart even from others other games like it
2: yeah it's it's interesting because it takes that really rich and compelling element of cyberpunk and like criminals for hire using tech and blends it with like a grim, dark, hopeless setting and robot focused space opera so it kind of blows it from a like localized city-based narrative to a galaxy-wide humans versus machines narrative, but you still have that cyberpunk element of, you know, small tight-knit crews going on missions. And the basically the story is that there the galaxy was settled by humans and robots and everyone was happy and living in peace and then there was a mutant war that almost destroyed everything. And then in the power vacuum of this ruined galaxy, a cult that worships technology and robots took over and rose to power. And now that they place no value on human life, and they only consider killing robots a crime. So now that there's like no human life has any value, and there's all these horrible power structures based on violence, uh, people take to the stars and their dilapidated spaceships, and they just kind of drift from one criminal job to the next, trying to make enough money to eat and keep fuel in their ship.
0: Oh, wow, I love that. This sounds like a good platform for <laughs> adventures, you know, <laughs> like a steady stream of adventures.
2: <laughs> yeah. The area where I was inspired for this game was I was playing a lot of D&D and D20 Modern, and I always felt like, you know, you go on these crazy adventures that make no sense. And at the time, Torchbearer wasn't even out yet, so I had never seen that concept of the, like, oh, you were the most desperate people in society yet. So... Uh, that's where I wanted to go with the story for Syntheside when I started working on it years ago. I worked on it for a long time before I ever launched it, but I was just like, I really, I felt like only, the only people who would become criminals or go on crazy adventures or do these live or die situations for, you know, not enough money, would be like people who are just absolutely desperate. So I wanted to create a social scene where everyone is super desperate and there's no like, real rule of law, so, you know, everything you do is, like, you're being paid to hurt someone else, and there's no authority that's going to come after you, you're just hoping the people that you hurt can't take revenge on you for what you do, so it just kind of creates a lot of those, like, tit-for-tat dynamics and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I'm getting some serious, uh, like, Firefly vibes from this. Yeah. Is there another inspiration or two that ties in closely with this that you want to talk about? What do you you think your inspirations are, the, the main touchstones for the game?
2: So I think the game, when you play it, feels very much like Firefly plus Terminator 2 because of the whole humans versus machines and the inexorable march of technology problem. But my actual original inspiration was uh, the Isaac Asimov Foundation series, which is about a human empire that spans across the galaxy and then falls apart. And then this small enclave of scientists like save everybody. It takes them thousands of years, but they eventually get society back on the right track. And also that society like keeps the tension between humans and robots correct and make sure robots don't become too powerful or whatever. And I was just like, well, wouldn't it be interesting if that like cabal of scientists was evil and thought human life had no value and actually thought robots were better than humans? And then I was just like, oh, and then that would lead to a society where violence is king and with violence as king. And then you can have a lot of cyberpunk, you know, criminal narratives where you're, you know, gunning your way into a facility to steal, you know, corporate data and stuff like that. And I loved cyberpunk at the time. I uh, hated the mechanics, but loved the setting of Shadowrun, as I'm sure almost everyone listening to this podcast would probably have a similar feeling about the mechanics of Shadowrun. Yeah, so I put the cyberpunk in there because I love cyberpunk. And then uh, it it was honestly just inspired by, like, what if Isaac Asimov's foundation was, like, evil tech-worshipping robot-obsessed people.
0: Oh, yeah, I love that. Uh, You know, it's quite compelling, too, uh, if you think about it. uh, Machines are so efficient, right? Scientists and, (laughs) and higher minds alike would probably one day agree that, oh, yeah, you know, machines are really where it's at. Machine intelligence, you know? smarter than people emotionally swayed but eventually yes those people end up being needed and yeah maybe they're part of the only solution to our humanity Does that sound kind of uh like in in the vein of what you're talking about
2: yeah definitely
0: excellent all right good i'm glad i grok that so you know thinking about your inspirations uh, i guess this has driven you to really want to have this published i mean you said that you've published this work once already and this is more of like a revision or a uh, revisiting where you're going to expand the setting to forged in the dark type stories very open to fictional precedents being set on the fly and things like that
2: well yeah the reason i picked blades wasn't just that i felt like my setting was so similar to the blade setting in terms of the themes and the types of characters that you play but also blades is my favorite narrative system because it has such a commitment to the concept of consequence and stakes oh yes which is something that can be lost when you play a narrative game so people complain about ludonarrative where the you know traditional game mechanics make something happen that makes no sense and i feel like narrative games sometimes do i don't even know what the terminology would be like um pseudo narrative almost where it's like it's just a random accruement of scenes based upon whoever had narrative authority at that time and what direction they wanted to go, and you can start to lack cohesion. And the fact that, you know, the fictional positioning system, and then all the traumas, and the concept of harm, and all these things that you have, it takes like some of the concepts of cohesion and uh, consequence that you get in Powered by the Apocalypse games, which I always liked, but then just takes it to the next level with a much higher level of uh, cohesion and consequence, like which are just important to me. I think maybe a lot of trad game I don't know, but as a trad gamer, that was the thing I always loved about traditional games is like, if you do X, Y might happen. So you have to decide, is it worth doing that? You know, and that you go down this path of accumulating circumstances that cause something to happen. And seeing that in a narrative game, like, so, like just plain as day saying, like, this is how the system works, and you build toward a reasonable conclusion that might be really bad and you don't want. Like, I, I really liked that about Blades.
0: Yeah, the fictional st- ties are strong between consequences and actions in Blades. It's almost unprecedented. I don't think I've seen it quite this strong, uh, you know, in another game system. So, yeah, I think if you're after that, you pick just exactly the right one. <laughs> As you're about to crowdfund this game, do you feel like you're on point for your uh, time frame that you have planned? What are we expecting as far as challenges on that? You know, where are you at?
2: Well, we have the core mechanics done and all the setting material from the original game is done. And we have a ton of artwork from the original game as well that we can reuse in this. So really it's just a, a matter of, you know, diving deeper on a couple of the mechanics, you know, On terms of how they interact, because we can't wholesale lift absolutely everything from Blades. So we got to do a little bit of refinement, but that's not going to take a whole lot of time because we've already got 40 pages of mechanical content written. And then we have all the story pages already done. So we just got to, you know, flesh out a few more things and throw them together. And we're planning to launch this Kickstarter around the time this podcast drops, actually.
0: Ooh, okay. So they can go look at it right now if they go where?
2: If they go to kickstarter.com and search for Syntheside Sharpers in the Dark.
0: Perfect. Yeah, they can see the uh, spelling in the uh, title in case, uh, in case you're listening in. Yeah, so that'll be on Kickstarter uh, later this month, uh, which will be around the time this drops. Obviously, print is in the works. Uh, is there some additional content that you're planning as stretch goals? Uh, what can we expect once you've hit your goal, which we know you will?
2: yeah
1: thank you mark (laughs) i appreciate it
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's gonna be a lot of stretch goals are gonna revolve around giving deep faction sheet treatments for all the different factions you can interact with so you know all the different tiers of the different factions and you know how they behave and how you interact with them just to kind of give some of that mechanical teeth to the already existing narrative
0: ooh juicy yeah, that sounds like a, a great addition for a more of a longer campaign, you know, to dig in much deeper. I think the GMs will appreciate that as well as players. They might be able to, to mine that for story information and, store, you know, cool stories for their characters and crew ideas. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the touchstones a little bit more. Uh, the, the touchstones that you mentioned before, often these touchstones will impact the mechanics and how the game develops What kind of challenges have either of you been facing in delivering on your touchstones? Like, how has that impacted the development of the game so far?
2: Well, I know a big challenge I gave Michael going in is, like, a really important part of Syntheside is its grim darkness and the way that this bleak society totally emotionally destroys your characters. So, I gave a challenge to him to make that narratively come to life using the Forged and the dark engine. I wanted that aspect to be like a big hook for what drives your characters.
1: My touchstone for this game is basically Synthesize the side itself because Dustin did make a really interesting sci-fi world. And so my job was basically to like, okay, how do I how do I take as much of that and translate it mechanically? into the game, so the players are seeing it, and it, like, triggers all the different fictional mechanical things we want it to be, to be triggering. Like, for example, there is, like, a thing we want to play with is lethality and, like, death of characters, which is a difficult thing to do in an RPG because it's it's something that you want it to be scary, but you don't want it to actually happen too often, right? Like, this is a thing that often happens in Blades of the Dark games where the system itself kind of wants you to care more about the crew than the individual characters, right? Oh, yeah. so like mm-hmm. Like, the, the crew is the thing that's supposed to survive, and characters can cycle through, they could die, they could retire, they could go to prison. But th- something that I've seen come up more and more, like, as I talk to more people playing this game, playing games myself, people don't really want to relinquish control of their characters. They want to see that character all the way through and then be done. Like, it's not really about the crew. It's about this this like awful found family of scoundrels and how, you know, they become at cross-purposes and eventually either, you know, kill each other or succumb to vice
0: <laughs> right yeah exactly they uh they often come at odds with each other too over time
1: which is great because like the yeah because the game like wants that to happen right
0: yeah there's always an expression going on between the players about their characters too so yeah there's a there's a lot of that and i guess the characters are expendable in blades much more so than we would say in Syntheside. from what i've seen so far it looks like there are some seriously different options to avoid the badness at the end of the the bottom of the pit so to speak.
2: <laughs> yes, the thing is lethality is there and death is prevalent, but there are ways to kind of tax your character and come back from death that Mark was playing with because that was a theme in the original game. In the original game you would die often, but then your character could use a meta currency to resurrect. But if you did not have that metacurrency, you could not come back from death, so you were always worrying about the permanent death. And that metacurrency was often earned by maintaining the emotional health of your character, which is a huge challenge in the, uh, the Synthesite universe, is maintaining your emotional health. So you can, you know, very often run out of that metacurrency and then end up on the wrong end of a blaster gun and then go down and then you're like, well, I guess this time it's the real permanent death. And... Uh, Michael came up with some cool stuff to make that happen in the Forged in the Dark Engine. Well,
0: well, before you kill my character, let's talk about making one. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'm really pretty excited to think about a character in this game world and uh, in your system, because I had a sneak peek at some of the materials. I noticed something in particular about the nature of your playbooks. Could you tell me more about when you're creating a character and the modular nature of your playbook design?
2: Right. So one of the big things about character creation in the original Syntheside is when you would first make the character at level one, because it's a level based system, and then you would commit to your archetype of what's called a bio class. And a bio class basically describes how cybernetic and or how mutated your character is. And you have all these different extremes of like no cybernetics, no mutations, no cybernetics, tons of mutations. A little bit of cybernetics a little bit of mutations or tons and tons of cybernetics like those are the different archetypes you can commit to when you make your character to kind of get that blended crew of different types of characters and uh, i was working with michael like how do we make this happen in fortune the dark like how do you handle cybernetics and how do you handle mutations and how do you make them be a commitment that you choose an archetype when you first make your character he ran some ideas by his players and did some playing with him and i i was like you know what if you choose two playbooks basically when you're making character one is your general archetype of what type of criminal you are and the other is the archetype of your bio class
0: Ooh, yeah i like that
2: yeah and we did some back and forth and did some experimentation with different special abilities you could acquire based on your archetype and then yeah so characters and the Forge and the Dark version of Synthesize have two playbooks instead of one.
0: Very cool. So I guess we can print one on the front and the other one on the back of the sheet? Right. Cool. Okay. Very nice. Also, I notice a lot of material on the bio class sheet. This is not a small paragraph or just a little bit of guidance text or one rule. There's a, apparently a whole slew of uh, things that come along with being, say, completely tacked out, you know? Do you want to talk a little bit about what you think is the, you know, what this what this helps do for the game?
1: This is sort of like Necessity is the mother of invention. So, like, the two playbooks thing kind of solved a couple of problems. One, we just didn't have enough room on one sheet to list all the cool stuff we wanted to do. <laughs> and so that kind of helped cement the decision to do two playbooks. And also, your bio class kind of feeds into a lot of one of the ways you can avoid dying which is, like, the Bioclass, basically its own playbook with a bunch of special abilities, and those could be mutations or cybernetics or a mixture of the two, or, like, unique talents that help you mechanically and fictionally. And also, the more of those you get, the better you are at avoiding death.
0: Ah, it was incentivized, in other words, uh, greatly, because, like you say, death is final, right?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like an interesting tier system where like, okay, like if you're, you take a lethal amount of harm, you know, your cybernetic enhancements or talents or mutations will help you avoid that. There's also another level where it's like, okay, like if you are just, you know, stabilized, you may need to, you know, get some cybernetics, more cybernetics put in or some removed. Like there's a whole other process we might have to spend currency or our stress analog, which is called Resolve to make sure you actually, you know, get from on death's door to a functioning sharper again.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The connection between all that is very strong. Since you brought it up, we'll talk about when you're going through that resolve, what happens when you're
1: out? So when you run out of resolve, instead of traumas, we have something called cynicism, which is... Sort of similar, fictionally, in that it's kind of like a tag for you to roleplay your character and how you are becoming more nihilistic, more fatalistic, as you try to live this very, very difficult life under the, the heel of machines and doing crimes all the time, but also In addition to describing your character also mechanically penalizes you, because for every cynicism you mark, you lose a point of resolve from your pool.
0: Yeah, it's eaten away at them.
1: So it's kind of like a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the more cynicism you take, the less resolve you have to spend, so the faster you get more cynicism. And you can kind of address cynicism by doing, like, selfless or, like, kind of the opposite of cynical things. Like, if you were charitable or help people or, like, kind of go out of your way to address this this gnawing angst inside yourself, you can actually remove these things over the course of the game.
0: Yeah, that's explicit in your game, I noticed. In Blades, for those who are listening that aren't exactly maybe familiar with everything, trauma is usually permanent. I guess their only option would be if the GM was nice. You know, the GM says, yeah, okay, you can work on getting rid of that. But in this game, we have a way, and the way is quite positive, it seems. It doesn't play back into the negative, or the dark fiction, the dark side of that fiction. We're uh, we're trying to throw some positivity in there. That, does that sound, I mean, that, that to me sounds great.
2: Yeah, it came from my own, that's that's like a theme in the original Syntheside is that when you're in a dark society, one of the ways you maintain your will to live is to try to make that society a little a little brighter which is a theme that a lot of people might go through in their life where you're really depressed and really sad and you're really anxious about your job and feel like everything sucks and then you go volunteer on the weekend and you feel better or like you get so focused on like oh i'm so sad and so depressed all the time and these other people's lives are so hard maybe i would feel a little better if i made their lives a little better you know so there's that kind of that element where you know, it's not true for everybody, but for a lot of people, if you take the time to look outside yourself when you're really struggling with your own suffering, it can actually alleviate your suffering. And that was like a theme in the original Syntheside, and I think Michael did a really good job bringing that forward in the system to remove cynicisms.
0: Yeah, uh, cynical, cynicalness is the thing that's going to take your your sharper down, so... I like the idea that there's a way to get out of it. Uh, that's quite clear, and that you know it's not all doom and gloom in this future that you've you presented. I think that's important to note, and a nice way to set yourself apart from you know lots of the grim dark that's out there.
2: Yeah, I always felt like you know if no one was trying to have a reason to live, then society would just 100% collapse. You know like this warhammer 40k universe where like no one does anything good for anyone ever you know it's like well then why do they cooperate and continue to build a society (laughs) you know like they may not be part of the game's prevalent narrative but i feel like in even in real life in the worst parts of our world people are helping each other just to try to feel that bond and feel like maybe it's not all that bad. Like, even some of the worst drug lords will take amazing care of their families and amazing care of their towns, and that totally doesn't absolve them of their crimes, but that's what they do to sleep at night. I think that kind of dynamic, that give and take of, like, having a brutal criminal job, but then trying to, you know, atone for what you've done and feel better about how you are a good force for other people, I think that's a very human thing that a lot of people go through.
0: Absolutely, uh, I think this will create a nice a nice connection between the player and their character, what they're going through. So here's something else that I've been thinking about, is these, these robots, do they feature themselves as playable characters in your game? Or is that totally, yeah, it's like the opposite of what you do in this game, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, the robots are always the other, and sometimes they're benevolent, usually they're neutral, and sometimes they're completely malicious, you know? But yeah, they... Uh... They are meant to be just a force that exists outside of you and your friends and your crew. You know, they're a class above you, and you are the crappy class. You are just generic stock humans.
0: Oh, yeah, right, with all our imperfections. Right. Well, that's interesting. So it's very, it's, it's a lot like our world today, I suppose, but there's a, a lot of advancement that has occurred. So it, it, it highlights a thing about the future that I think is important, to mention in any science fiction work, which is that we're not going to be that different. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's not like the world, like, like everything's going to be totally different. I mean, yeah, tech will be different, but people will still be people. I think we we'll still have value.
2: Right. For sure. And then there's still that push and pull of, you know, how much do you value other people and how much do you exploit other people and how do the power structures, do they serve the people or do they serve the you at the top of the power structure. And this kind of takes a bleak view that the power structure serves itself and serves the tech advancement rather than the everyday person.
0: I kind of want to roll back to the death thing and the deadly consequences. I'm interested to know what sort of things might we see befall those who venture too far into the uh, unknown?
2: Yeah, so one of the things is there's like very tons of different levels of technology available. To the different characters, like some person might be using a crappy, just regular bullet pistol, you know, just gunpowder bullet pistol, and then some security guard's gonna hit him with an antimatter rifle and liquefy his insides, <laughs> you know. And Michael did some really cool work with the fictional positioning parts and the levels of effect of of uh, the Fortune of the Dark engine to kind of like create this like dichotomy where you know, the weapons you have available and the tier of the factions you're up against very much, like, will put your backs against the wall where you're like, we don't have the tech to kill these guys. How do we, you know, so we can't go in guns blazing. How do we fix this situation? Or, you know, vice versa, where, like, you guys, your crew tier is way leveled up and you have this really great armor and then you know, you're fighting people with just, you know, regular slug throwers. You know, you're able to exert a lot more unfortunately cynical violence on them, (laughs) you know, because... They can't really hurt you as much and uh just kind of making that that sort of stratification of because violence is the only real power structure and then like the stratification of capabilities of violence across the different tech levels is you know kind of like an interesting thing to play within the system and that again the fictional positioning and the levels of effect system are like a really interesting way to approximate that in a really fast narrative way rather than like a really nitpicky detailed like crunchy, traditional gamer way and then again though like if your character dies they might be able to come back there is like even after final death technically it's not even final death but even after you actually die you can still be taken to like an advanced surgeon to try to like stitch you back together one last time and if you have too many cynicisms, like the role is heavily penalized because it's like your character has lost the will to live. And then likewise, even if you are totally healthy, if you max out your required cynicisms, your character betrays the party and just like goes rogue because you're like, you don't believe in anybody anymore except yourself. And then basically become an, you know, un- unplayable, you know, character that betrays the crew. So I thought that was something interesting you know, Michael figured out as like, you know, those two ends. So like at both ends of the spectrum, both lethal and emotional harm, it's, you know, your cynicism is what's going to disrupt your ability to survive and keep going.
1: Sort of grim, dark retirement plan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can go back to Shady uh, Acres if you want, but you'll be be a machine's like thumb slave or something.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that... That was kind of, like, the the funnest part of doing this, this like, conversion so far from the versus versions inside. Because Dustin made, like, a whole bunch of really cool weapons and gear and stuff. And Mark, as you know, like, Blazers of the Dark Games love that kind of stuff. So, like, all right, all right, well, this is obviously standard gear. This is stuff that most people would have. And, that, you know, this Hellfire Beam Rifle, okay, well, that's probably something the fighter's going to have. That's going to be fine, because that can kill mostly everything, so... Yeah, it's been really fun. And also, the original system that has, like, it was almost a shame to lose all this, like, very intense, like, grid combat, like, tactical rules that Dustin had. But I think we reclaimed, like, some of that, and that, like, our harm system is, like, very localized, Like so you can take a certain amount of harm to different parts of your body. So instead of, like, just a generic condition that could affect your die pool or, or affect your position, it could be, like, okay, you take a harm to your left arm and to your chest... And then that could feed into like what you get replaced with cyberware or like how you're going to play your character or like how that will affect position and, and affect, you know during a firefight or a social interaction.
0: Oh, yeah, I like that a lot. Basically, you, you've excised some of the mechanics from a game that uh, already has a fan base, Dustin designed. Do you feel like there was a lot that you had to salvage to keep the life spirit of the game? Or does most of that translate through the fiction?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good fit in a lot of ways because, as I think Dustin's pointed out, like this, it's kind of just like Duskfall in space. Like, there's just a lot of things gunning for the players instead of you know Leviathans and you know corrupt government ministries. It's a church of you know, corrupt priests and you know super intelligent, and capable synthetics, and you know whatever else might be happening in the in the galaxy, like megafauna and. Whatever.
0: Well, yeah, but you're trapped in Duskfall, usually. So here we're not trapped.
1: It's true, but you are kind of trapped within this social strata, right? You are trapped yeah. as being a human being in a galaxy that does not care about human beings. So you are fighting for kind of every edge you can get. So in that terms, like, Blaze of the Dark wants to, as the system is, wants to tell a story of people who are you know the underdogs, basically, right? It wants to tell a story about people who are fighting for every advantage they can get. And so, because Syntheside was already that kind of world, it was really easy to port that kind of stuff over. And like I said, there's a whole bunch of items that work really well on the character sheets. There's already like cybernetic enhancements and like, you know, different combat talents that translate really well into just special abilities. Just to mention earlier, like there's a whole bunch of like factions in the game that we could write up. And give them tiers and NPCs and different opportunities for the players to interact with them. So yeah, I haven't had to do a whole lot of like make stuff up whole cloth. It's more been like taking what's there already and figuring out where we can put it in this system or if we have to like make you know new accommodations, new rules for those parts, um if they're important to the to the flow of the game.
0: So what happens when you have too many pieces of machinery in your body? Do you ever like fall to the wayside there?
2: Well, we were talking about that and we had a big discussion a few weeks ago because we basically decided the system we wanted to follow is that cybernetics are essentially special abilities that you buy with coin instead of experience. And we realized that, you know, Sharpers, the like, you know, adventuring class of people in Syntheside, one of the areas that a lot of them would be spending their coin on, which, you know, has its own you know, terminology within the fiction, but I'll just stick coin to kind of stay neutral. But what they spend their coin on is their long-term projects to remove their cynicisms and try to recover from their emotional trauma. And if you're spending all your coin on cyberware to like get really strong and really powerful really quickly, you have less coin to spend on your own emotional health. So you get, you might get, if you're not careful and don't balance things correctly, you'll get stuck in a loop where you're racking up cynicisms because you're not liquid enough to, you know, feel good about yourself and deal with what your emotional issues are.
0: Oh, sure. And it's a downward spiral as well, like you said. you Once you lose yeah. some resolve, then the cynicism just comes afloat, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's more like trying to, like, give the players options, like, where they want to spend their resources.
0: Because um, oh, we okay. definitely
1: don't want to do, like, the thing that happens in a lot of cyberpunk stuff is, like having like more mutations or like more cybernetic prosthetics makes you like less human somehow. It's more like there are a lot of pressures on you and you're going to have to decide like where you want to spend your resources to try to stay alive for as long as possible.
0: Got it. Yeah, that that makes sense. The interesting part I think about all of this is that We don't have a lot of far-flung future Blades in the Dark type hacks out there yet. I mean, there's yours, Neon Black. I mean, that's not super far-flung though, right? That's more near future?
1: Yeah, that's like 100 or so years in the future, 100, 200 years cyberpunk stuff.
0: Yeah, what's the rough time frame for this one?
1: It's unknown
2: because Earth is forgotten and the galaxy got so mature and then got so obliterated that it went into a dark age.
0: Oh, man. Wow, that should have been at the front of the whole episode.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Holy crap, Edited I no Edit that in later. <laughs> yeah, that mutant war that broke society and let this cult rise to power uh, basically obliterated almost everything, and then we entered a dark age. And then, I, again, I cribbed that theme from... Isaac Asimov's foundation, because the whole premise of that book series is that the galaxy goes through a dark age and starts forgetting things. Like, he kind of just hand-waved, oh, you know, the galaxy just collapsed and went into a dark age. And I was like, no, there is is a, a definite, like, cause for this dark age, which is a mutant force that is able to mind control anyone who becomes a mutant, and then they start obliterating all the planets, and then they literally start just blowing up every planet that they suspect might have a presence of this evil force on there, and then social just society just completely crumbles, and then only the outer rings where the fighting never happened, that's basically all that's left, is these like fringes of the galaxy, you know, out of this central area of the galaxy, and like Earth is like in the system, like in the in the lore, you know, we kind of nod to the players like, oh this planet is actually Earth, But everyone else knows it is Terran Altar and no one knows what it's for. Other than that, it has a million jump gates around it. They're like, we don't know why this planet is important. It sucks. It's uninhabitable. It's a radioactive wasteland. But it has tons of jump gates and it appears on every map we've ever found.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, clearly this is important. (laughs) This is kind of exactly what would happen, I think, if people stumbled on a planet of an ancient civilization that was gone or something. I can do lightning round questions
1: down for some lightning round
2: favorite implant jump
1: jets Ooh.
0: it's
2: basically a rocket system in your body that lets you just like take off and go chase a sky car whenever you feel like it
1: Dustin stole mine that was gonna be mine <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay
0: uh, let's see uh, favorite cynicism
1: uh, I mean I'm a philosophy graduate so I'm a big fan of nihilism yeah
2: Nihilism is interesting, like when you just feel like nothing has any purpose, like how do you keep going?
0: Uh, yeah, I can relate. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the, uh, the, the thing is, is that we'll be able to break free from that in this game, which is actually, you know, really exciting. I do think that uh, a lot of our listeners will be really intrigued by what you're bringing to the table. And uh, I really think that you're looking for a success with this. Uh, the art looks great. The design looks solid and I'm really excited to see where you take this. I'm really happy. I got to have both of you on the show and get both of your insights into syntheside and all of its inspiration and touchstones. I'm glad you could make it out. And thank you for taking the time out to come
2: out. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah. Thanks.
0: Absolutely. Uh, We have some links that we're going to put in the show description. Uh, If you would let us know what those are. So those who are listening and don't have access to that can can go ahead and find you.
1: Sure.
2: My Twitter is at depending Dustin. That's D-E-P-E-N-N-I-N-G-D-U-S-T-I-N. And I pretty much only post on Twitter when I have a project up and running or I'm tweeting at a random YouTube show, which doesn't happen that often. The place where I also make a lot of announcements about my projects is I use uh, my mailing list on drive dot RPG.com that they made for me. So if you go to drive Thru RPG and search for publishers and look up willpower games, W I L L space P O W E R space G A M E S willpower games. That's my mark on drive Thru RPG and you can subscribe to it and I'll be making a, a lot of
1: my Kickstarter announcements to that mailing list.
0: Ah, excellent. And about you, Michael, where can we find you on uh, Twitter?
1: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Kindling Boy. That's K-I-N-D-E-L-I-N-G-B-O-Y, where I talk about my games and uh, capitalism a lot.
0: (laughs) Oh, just randomly capitalism. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, What about Itch? We got a we got a link for you there.
1: Yeah. You can find all my games at Socrates.h.io. that's S O H K R A T E S. And also I just like today, the day we're recording this, finally got some stuff up on drive through RPG, so you can check my stuff out there at not writing games.
0: I thought that was a joke. <laughs> no I thought, I
1: thought not <laughs>
0: writing games meant you weren't writing games on drive through. <laughs> that's hilarious. No. Okay. okay. So your company is not writing games. That's how we find you. Yes. Okay, memorable. Is there anything else you'd like to plug while we got a couple of minutes here?
2: If anyone in this audience at all dips into traditional gaming, I'm going to be uh revamping the core system from the original Syntheside to make a more open-ended adventure system, but that's, you know, still in the works, but that's something to keep an eye out for.
0: Oh, very cool. So your your old fans will have something to look forward to as well. Well, they definitely will with this new uh, product, though, if they're really, you know, if they like what you're doing, they'll probably be into this as well. So I'm super hyped for your uh, Kickstarter, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you drop and what you work on, uh, you know, through and see how many goals that you actually just blow through the roof. That would be nice. This has been a very special episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Mark, and remember when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as hacks in the dark.